What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. Welcome to Healing Conversations with Pastor Dave Roberts. We don't talk anymore. Do you wish your relationships were deeper and communicating was easier? Do you leave conversations feeling frustrated and empty? Healing Conversations helps us reveal our truest and deepest identities. Dave Roberts, senior pastor of Matros Church and author of his new book, Healing Conversations, brings us insight on how we can deepen our love for each other by way of good communication. Let's work on this together. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Good morning and welcome. You're listening to Healing Conversations. I'm Pastor Dave Roberts and we're talking today, uh, introducing a, a couple of weeks here of conversation uh, that I'm calling an invitation to reality. And so uh, today to just specifically talk about a little reality check. And I'm going to tell you a crazy story and uh, give you a little background into why we're doing what we're doing. A few months ago, uh uh, a guy that I know, a part of our congregation and leadership team, came to me and said, listen, you know, it'd be awesome if you talked about this topic. And so he gave me an outline for some things and and I read it and I thought, I don't know, man, that's a, I don't know if I understand even what you're talking about. This guy's incredibly bright. And so we kind of began to work together on this process. And, uh, and so these couple of conversations are sort of a product of the evolution of those conversations. And here's what they center around. There's this super unique situation going on in the New Testament. Uh, there's a letter called the Letter to the Colossians. And so if you're familiar with the book of Colossians, uh, there's a group of people in a city called Colossae. And, uh, and so, you know, Paul is writing them a letter. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul. He was probably imprisoned in Rome at the time that he wrote it. And he's writing to encourage them. It's a very small, it's a house church, only about uh, 20 people or so. Uh, and they're meeting in the home of a man named Philemon. And so you get this whole story of Colossians, and we'll develop that a little bit uh, as we talk here in the next few minutes. But then you get this very unique thing that happens, and that is after the letter to uh, the church at Colossae is written, the book of Colossians, there is a follow-up letter. It's just one chapter long. It's very short, one page, and it is called the book of Philemon. And so this letter to Philemon comes at the same time to the same group of people, to the leader of the church. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's absolutely unprecedented in its day, and there's a lot of stuff. So we're going to jump into that crazy story, and uh, we're going to think about uh, the invitation we have to live at a whole different level of life. So before we jump into all that, let me ask you, where do you get your self-worth? Take a minute, think about it. I'm not asking you where you think you should get it. I'm asking you where you actually get it. There are times that I feel validated and then I feel embarrassed by what has given me validation because it's kind of shallow Am I the only one? Sometimes the opposite could be true. 
I feel discouraged. Uh, I feel defeated. And when I analyze why I feel defeated, uh, the reason is uh, intellectually not really worth being upset about. And yet I am. I'm hurt. I'm discouraged. I'm overwhelmed. These things are bothering me at a level that's way, way more than it ought to. So how honest can we be here? I, I'll be transparent. I feel best. I feel most worthwhile when I'm succeeding, when my work is seeing great results, when things are growing, you know, when, when the financial part of my work is growing and getting better, you know, people are giving generously. We're able to accomplish the mission work that we're involved in, all of those things. When new people are showing up, when, when things have a little bit of a buzz and they feel vital and alive and the services are full, all of that stuff, I feel, I feel validated by being wanted. I feel validated. When someone calls and says, hey, we're, we're running this thing and we want you to come and speak and can you be a part of it? I feel validated, you know, when, when I feel you know, appreciated. Is that just me? Uh, when people think that what I have to offer is valuable, I, I feel validated. When I'm productive, I feel validated when I'm churning out work, when I'm finishing up another sermon, when I've written another piece of work, when I've... Uh, you know, even accomplish things at home, finish the yard, done. I feel good about accomplishing things. I feel good about accumulating stuff. And I don't mean random stuff or collectibles, but, you know, I feel as my life grows in richness. So, you know, when there's more financial security, when another grandchild is born, when, you know, these friendships are are developed. I, I feel validated when I'm accomplishing or accumulating things. I feel validated when I feel smarter than anyone else, or at least smarter than someone. I don't think that's just me. Where do you find your worth? I know I'm supposed to find my worth as a as a leader, as a Christian. As a pastor, I'm supposed to find my identity in Christ. I'm supposed to find it in the fact that, you know, I'm a child of God and he created me. I'm supposed to be able to realize that uh, that's uh, the ultimate source of my reality and that somewhere in there I'm imprinted with the very image of Christ. But sometimes it seems like that's an escape from reality. I think the, the biblical story is that's an escape to reality. Paul is certainly made this idea of what worth and all of those things. It's been a journey he's familiar with. He's, he's based his worth on his own performance by his own admission. He's, he's been the overachiever by his own status, his own intelligence, his own insights. And then he has this gut-wrenching reality check and everything that he once held valuable becomes worthless because he's encountering the opportunity to live a life that has worth based in a much deeper reality. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Colossae. It's a church that's under some pressure. I mentioned earlier, it's not a big church. It's a, it's a house church. Paul didn't found the church. It was founded by a person named Epaphras. But he's writing a letter from Rome in prison to this church, and he's writing to a group of people that are under enormous pressure. They're being asked to make a decision. They're being asked to 
to give their loyalty to a couple of perspectives. And the first area that is pressuring them is the side of sort of the Roman culture. The Roman culture of the first century was uh, what you could call a, a mystical polytheism. Classically, you could say the Romans were pagans. They believed in gods and goddesses, uh, much like their Greek forebears did. But the Romans, as they expanded and conquered, they, they adopted a philosophy that is much more straightforward. It's really pluralism. So you didn't have to accept the Roman idea of gods and goddesses. You, you could add any other religion into the mix, and it could become this sort of mystical polytheism. Lots of different gods, lots of different ideas. As they conquered peoples, they didn't take away their systems of belief or their religious uh, connection, all except for one. One kind of belief system really wasn't good for the Romans, and that's monotheism. And that's why the Jews had such a difficult time in the Roman culture because the failure to embrace all of the many gods represented in the pantheon of gods within the Roman culture uh, created a disconnection, which is ironic because all of the Greek philosophies and the Roman philosophies pointed towards at some point, if you continue to distill down this idea of, of a God and the divine, you would get to the highest good. You would get to the singular source of divine goodness. It was called the sumum bonum, the highest good. So the believers at Colossae were being pressured to buy into this pluralism. But that wasn't the only group putting them under pressure. The other group were the Jews, the Orthodox, traditional Jews who had sort of invaded this new movement of Christianity and were basically saying whenever you become transformed by the power of God and you're a new creation, then your life has to show it. You have to display this transformed life. And so they were being pressured to start to live out sort of the Jewish ideal of religion. Lots of rules, lots of regulation, lots of custom, lots of hand washing, lots of food laws, lots of things that they were supposed to do in order to demonstrate their commitment and the transformation that had taken place in them. And so Paul is writing to basically say, don't do either one. Don't buy into the polytheism and don't buy into the legalism of Judaism. Find another way. Find the way of grace. Find the way of freedom. And in the letter to the church of Colossae, he describes it this way. You have been extended an invitation to leave the dominion of darkness and to come into the kingdom of God, to leave the dominion of depression, of being overwhelmed, of uh, not having any sort of set system of belief or faith, but also the system of legalism that weighs you down. Don't remain in that. And don't remain in the devaluing of human beings. Don't be caught in the space in which justice and fairness and loving others as you love yourself and treating others the way you want to be treated. Don't don't forget that you're being invited out of a dominion of selfishness and and that becomes very, very practical for this letter. And so when you begin to think about that, now that's the context of the letter. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's inviting them to. But running in the background is a backstory. There's something underneath the surface. And it involves a person named Onesimus. 
And Onesimus is a slave, and that slave belongs to the head of the house church in Colossae, Philemon. So we don't only have this letter of Colossians, we have the second letter, Philemon. And I'm going to unpack that story for you a little when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I am Dave Roberts. We're talking about an invitation to reality and a reality check. So here's the situation. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, hey, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live under the pressure of uh, buying into all of the beliefs in the culture. You don't have to live in... Uh, this polytheistic sort of watered down world in which everything is sort of equally good. You, you don't have to go there, but you also don't have to live in the legalism of the old Jewish mentality where everything weighs you down and everything is a, about, did you keep all the rules? Don't, don't buy into either of that. Instead, leave the dominion of darkness and come into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. Live a life of freedom and grace and mercy and all those things that we value so much. And as he's telling that story and inviting the church to be that, he's writing to the whole church, but he's writing specifically to the leader of the church, the the person who owns the home in which the house meets. His name is Philemon. And so here's the background. Onesimus evidently has been a slave that belonged to Philemon, and he has fled. He has run away. Onesimus has run away, and he's run away to Rome. And somewhere along the way, he has encountered Paul, and as a result of that friendship or relationship, Onesimus has committed his life to Christ. And so Paul has looked at Onesimus and said, listen, uh, whatever you think about slavery, you got to go back and make it right. We have some indication because Paul offers to pay the debt. We have some indication that Onesimus probably didn't just leave and run away, that he probably stole something from Philemon as well. Now, For a slave to flee, it was a capital crime. And just so we kind of understand, if you think about the ancient world, if I were to ask you, you know, what's the organic source of power? What fuels our life and economy today? We'd probably go, well, you know, fossil fuels, electricity. We have an organic source of power that sort of, you know, if you don't think so, what happens when the power goes out? We become completely dysfunctional. We don't know what to do. And in uh, Paul's day, that organic source of fuel that sort of ran the culture and the world and the economy were slaves. In the first century, one in three people in Italy were slaves. One in three. Worldwide, it was one in five. It's estimated that in the first century, the Roman Empire had 60 million slaves within their borders. Slavery was a a deep reality of life. Any conquered peoples became slaves. And we talk about the Roman culture, very enlightened, you know, uh, you had a a democracy forming, you had a a system of justice in which people were represented and uh, had to be found guilty by a jury, but only for Roman citizens, only Roman citizens. Everyone else could be labeled a something instead of a someone. So Roman citizenship was a big deal. So Paul then writes the letter to this church at Colossae, meeting 
in the home of a man named Philemon who owned slaves and one of them has escaped. And basically now Paul is writing not only to the church but this second letter, the, the letter of Philemon, and saying, I have some expectations. So listen to what Paul writes in the opening of this letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Appia, his sister, and Agrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, But now he's become useful both to you and to me. So to stop for a moment and to think about what this means. So Paul, after writing this letter to Colossae and saying, leave the dominion of darkness, come into the kingdom of God. Now he says to Onesimus, you've got to go back and make this right. That is so inconvenient. I mean, who would want to face the possibility of capital punishment? I mean, a slave could be executed for escaping and particularly for stealing. But he's also saying to Philemon, I have some expectations for you. For Onesimus to come back and make it right, that's the expectation. But for you, Philemon, I I want you to welcome him back as a brother. I want you to welcome him back. This is absolutely unheard of. You talk about a reality check. I mean, Philemon, you know, is thinking, I'm going to do this God thing. I'm going to do this following the kingdom of God thing and the kingdom of light and leaving the dominion of darkness. But I didn't know it was going to mean that I have to think about people in the world differently, that I have to treat every single person I meet, even these people who have been enslaved by my cultures. And so in some ways, Paul is presenting him with a word problem. He's writing almost a a coded message in these words. And I just want to highlight a few things about this invitation that Paul creates for Philemon. He's basically saying, I want you to welcome back Onesimus, and I want you to restore him, not as a slave, but as a brother. So listen to a couple of things. Number one, the request that Paul makes is loving. It's not coerced. Paul was in a position to make some demands. He could have said to Philemon, listen, do the right thing. Do the right thing. I'm Paul. Everybody knows who I am. I have power. I have the ability to demand. I I could put a lot of pressure on you. But listen, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light is not about compliance. It's about transformation. I could get you to do the right thing, but I don't want you to do it because I'm making you. I want you to do it because something's changed inside you. This is a big deal. We we desire so much to see a world that's different, where there's real justice and fairness and an end to racism, and, and we respect the environment. We do our best at so many things that we're failing at. 
But until something changes deep inside of our hearts, until something transforms and we take on a new understanding of who people are and how they're made and what the world is about, until we leave the dominion of darkness where selfishness and you know our own self-interest seems to dominate, we're not going to see much change. Paul understood that you can't coerce people into such change. You have to invite them. And so he makes a loving appeal. The second thing I notice is this. It's a humble appeal. It's not proud. So when Paul references himself, he he has this sort of thing. It is I, none other than Paul. He could have said so many things next. He could have said Paul, the founder of the church in the Western world. He, he could have said so many things about himself, an apostle. He could have said many things, but this is what he chooses to say. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ. Paul chooses this sort of language because it's humble. And when you think about it, what he's saying to Philemon is, listen, the old order, the old hierarchy, slave owners and slaves, that's going away. In this new kingdom of light, we we don't look at people like that. They're not commodities. We're all equal. We are all children of a divine God with equal worth. And so we regard one another differently. And Paul can't really make that claim if he sets himself up as an authority. And so he doesn't. He just simply says, I'm just an old guy and I'm imprisoned. I want you to do it because you want to do it. It's about humility. The best remedy for an inflated sense of self-worth is a reality check that we're all really the same. We're all really of equal worth and equal value. The third thing I notice is it's relational, not logistical. This idea of welcoming back Onesimus is not about you know doing the right thing and it's not about the logistics of it. He's not talking about a transaction Sometimes we do that. Powerful people do good deeds for people who are disenfranchised because it seems like the right thing to do. He's talking about a kingdom where people get relationally involved, where they actually fall in love with each other and care about each other. So Paul states it this way, this man Onesimus has become my son. I'm standing in the gap with this guy. I identify with him at such a deep level. I'm not asking you to do the right thing as a token I'm asking you to identify in a deeply relational way with what needs to happen. Fourth thing, it's intelligent and not naive. There's a play on words. Next week I'll follow through the rest of the play on words, but there's a play on words here. The word, the name Onesimus actually means useful, handyman more or less. Many, many slaves were named Onesimus because it just simply means a useful person. Paul now creates a play on words, a very intelligent turn of the Greek language in which he's basically saying, you know, he used to be Onesimus, a useful person. I'm asking you to make him a person who becomes a brother, useful in a brand new way. And so he's basically saying then, I want you to consider, I want you to think about all the implications that it would mean to welcome Onesimus back not as a forgiven slave, but as a brother. I want you to leave the dominion of darkness and dwell in the kingdom of light. I want it to be because you want to. We're going to unpack it a little more when we come back. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClenahan is going to join us in just a moment. Let me add one more thought. So hopefully you've got the setup. Paul's writing two letters. He's writing them to the church at Colossae. One is about, listen, don't be pressured by the Roman culture. Don't buy into all that. Don't be pressured by the Jewish culture. Don't buy into that legalism. Find the middle way between these extremes, a place of freedom and light. And then underlying, he's saying, by the way, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, who's been very helpful to me, and I'm asking you to welcome him back as a brother. Now, get this in your head. It is Onesimus who delivers these two letters to Philemon and to the church at Colossae. Onesimus himself hands these letters off to those leaders. So Paul, as I sort of mentioned as we went to break, that this was an intelligent conversation, not naive. He wasn't asking some kind of Pollyanna sort of gloss all over it. He was asking something much deeper. And so the language now becomes very important. I mentioned the the play on the words of Onesimus' name. But there's more to it than that. In fact, what Paul says is he begins to talk about imprinting. He He's making an illusion, and here's the illusion. There are coins in the Roman culture, and they are stamped with the face of Caesar. And then in this idea of who Christ is, we are imprinted with the very image of Christ. So Paul creates a play on words that basically says, will you regard Onesimus as one who is imprinted by the coin of Caesar? Will you, will you think of Onesimus as a human being, a person, a slave who is worth in modern numbers, 70 to 150 or $200,000, which was a substantial amount of money? Or will you think of him as a person who is imprinted with the image of Christ? Not a commodity, but a brother. A person imprinted with the very same image, the same kind of currency. And then Paul says, all of us are image bearers. And we should go about that business in a very serious way. And so I just want to uh, encourage a little reality check. What are you thinking about your self-worth, about where you find your value and your worth? What are you thinking about the world in which we live and what it could be or what we wish it would be? We are invited to leave a dominion of darkness and come into the kingdom of God, a kingdom of light, a kingdom in which we embrace ideals that are far beyond anything that we are an activist for in our culture, in our world. It's a, it's a big, big reality check. What Paul is asking is a spirit and attitude of love and grace for one another that is unprecedented in his day, but it continues to be unprecedented in our day. I'm going to invite Eric into the studio. Welcome, Eric. How are you? Hey, Dave. Good to see you, man. How's everything? Everything's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so we're talking about this crazy, crazy setup. And uh, I don't know how many people even know this story exists in the New Testament. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one. Yeah. What's your reaction? I've been sitting here listening and I'm still stuck on the first part of of really trying to analyze how I find my self-worth. Yeah. I've been thinking about that like the whole time that you've been talking. Sure. I, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit. How 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 do you, How do you find that? 
Well, you, you know, how do I personally find self worth, or yeah. how do I define what self worth is? Or no, I mean, I mean, we we're all you know, we all know the answer is you find your self worth in God. Yeah, you know, you, you know I I think as much as I would like to tell myself that I find self worth in some higher ideal, I, I find it kind of like most humans do: accomplishment, success. Um, you know, people who appreciate me and think what I do is unique. And, you know, I I don't think I'm uniquely different as much as I'd like to think I am or I want to be or I try to be. Yeah. You know, again, there's a question of what do I think, where do I think I should get my self-worth and then really what makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, so those are two different things. No, for sure. Mine is like specifically based on what the things I create. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I don't, if I if I just lead worship on a Sunday and somebody comes up and says, "Wow, you sang really great today," or "That was a great worship set," I don't find validation in that. Yeah, because I just go, I you know, Phil Wickham wrote those songs. Yeah. I, I was just a glorified karaoke singer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and and we've seen we've talked about this before, but often the person that is walking out of a service and saying that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> They were asleep the whole time, yeah. and you know they were asleep the whole time. So, so some of those compliments in real time, you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. But when it's a genuine compliment of something that I created, that there was yeah. a blank page and I made it, and right. no one can claim rights to it, yeah, that's when I feel validated. Yeah, and then I think that's also tremendously vulnerable space, mm-hmm. you know. And I think in some ways, I think you, you know, you create vulnerability because you put services together you you pick the music you build the structure and so there's a certain sense that every week you're on display of you think this works yeah i create vulnerability because i write and speak every week right and so you know this is what i think it's out there i i say this often in services and that is you know just me it's just me you're gonna leave me here i'm up here you know um but I do think there's vulnerability in that and that creativity. And then you go on beyond that into writing musicals and plays and, you know, all of that stuff is vulnerable space. Yeah, for sure. No, And I mean, the opposite is true, too. I think some of the more depressing, hurtful times is when I've created something that I feel like felt like I put a lot into. Yeah. That don't get a response. Yeah. Those are and you look at it and you go, do you guys do you understand what I just did? Right. Come on. Yeah. Well, and I think too, you know, and we've talked about this, uh, you know, you don't get a lot of credit for being consistent. Yeah. To be consistently creative. I mean, if you have a show that you love on TV and every week they deliver, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, all right. Yeah. But what gets your attention is if they don't, if there's a bad episode. You right. Go, right. Oh, that's, and I think church is that way. Yeah. You know, I think, your creativity is that way. It's like, well, I'll let you know when you're not doing it. Yeah. But that you showed up again and it was good again and right, it, right. it was competent again. I'm way more consistent than Saturday Night Live. Way no more consistent. <laughs> <laughs> way more consistent. So, yeah, I think self-worth is a big deal. And yeah. I think we all – and, you know, I think there's a, a, a piece of that that we should take away this. People do want to be appreciated and they do want to be noticed and they do want to be, you know, have someone say thank you. And, you know, they don't want to blend into the landscape. Yeah. 
Right. I, I observe this. I observe that uh, often, you know, uh, we might deal with a family in crisis, a marriage that's breaking up. And consistently what I find is, you know, one or both partners are saying my felt needs aren't getting met. And I've seen this happen so many times over the decade. So they go out and find ways to get those felt needs met. But what they miss is how many needs are getting met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then, and then, well, I went and got the, there's 20% of my felt need not getting met. So I went and got that. But now the 80% that was quiet and being met and that right. I didn't really even know is right. gone. Right. And I think that's how human beings are. So, so stepping into space and being appreciative. So, yeah, I mean, I think we all probably find our self-worth and. Right. I think this letter is asking us to see it in a bigger context, even if we can't honestly say that's where I get it. Right. I'm really interested in the context here. You said that they were kind of caught between Rome, who had embraced kind of a pluralism, which in a way makes sense because they're conquering, they're, they're exposed to a lot more cultures and stuff and who they conquer and their expansion and pick and choose this and that of what they seem to... But how far out are we from Jesus in this time? Uh, we're 10 years. So it's weird to me a little bit that like the son of God came to earth and then it was kind of a slow burn. Oh, yeah. That, that it didn't just like explode yeah. immediately. Yeah. Because when, we're, when you're talking about caught between Rome and the Jews, so the, these are Jews who did not think that Jesus was the Messiah? Like did that split nope. happen already? No, these are Messianic Jews. These, oh, are, okay. these are Jews who have already bought in, and now they're trying to influence this new sect of Christianity within. Oh. So, so Rome sees Christianity as a sect of Judaism. There are the highly Orthodox Jews that, like Paul, who persecuted people who were as a, as heretical. Right, right, right. So there's that whole Orthodox group. Right. And then there's another group of Jews. So when you read the New Testament, you say, here's how the gospel is spreading. They go into the synagogues and they preach. They go to a new town and they go to the synagogue and they preach. And so the, when you get in the book of Acts and there's rioting and there's things. There are Jews that are now converting to Christianity. But then there's a whole debate that goes on in the New Testament of how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian. Right, right. And so if you get inside the politics, then Peter becomes sort of an advocate for being very Jewish, and Paul becomes an advocate for not being very Jewish at all. Right. So often behind Paul, as Paul would come and do missionary work, there would be emissaries from Jerusalem who would come to say, well, you've got to be very Jewish. Right. And so these things battle. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start a new segment of conversations out of the book of Galatians, and we're going to see this super vividly because there's actually a very pretty vicious battle between these Jewish Christians who are demanding adherence to Judaism and Paul. And so you will see it more vividly, but that's what's going on is there's this conflict. I guess it's just weird to me because it's clear to me reading it now that Jesus was like very against legalism and very against the law and all that stuff. And then 10 years later, they tried to take his message and make it legalistic. And you know what I mean? Like that, that, that's a, that's odd to me that so quickly afterwards they still didn't get it. It's a great thing to talk. We're going to come right back from a break and we'll jump right on that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClanahan's in studio. We're talking about this uh, invitation to a new reality, reality check. And we left off uh, talking about the fact that just 10 years, maybe 15 years after Christ uh, was crucified, now the church is already back in. The early New Testament Acts Church is already back into this battle of legalism. And yeah. uh, when Jesus came to... You know, in vivid, vivid language, you know, uh, he talks about the yoke, uh, the weight that the Pharisees have placed on the people. And, and that, that powerful verse in Matthew, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest unto your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Liberating them from all of that. So, yeah, they're struggling just like we all do. This is how I was raised. This is what I was taught. Even though I, I can see intellectually that it's not necessary or the right thing. I have a hard time emotionally letting go of it, mm-hmm. and so I, that's the battle. Yeah, and it, and so if you if you follow the narrative, this is sort of off topic, but if you follow the narrative of the New Testament, you find Peter has this vision, and you know he's asleep, and you know, and then he sees a sheet lowered from heaven, and it's full of all kinds of things that are unclean for him to eat, and mm-hmm. their voice says, "Rise, kill, and eat," and he's like, "Oh, I, you know, I can't do that. I'm a you know a kosher Jew," and and uh, the voice says, don't call unclean anything God has called clean. And this happens three times. And then as soon as it happens the third time, there's a knock at the door. And there are Gentiles who have come to the door and asked Peter to come and speak to them. And so Peter, at this moment, there's a transformation that happens to him. Uh, he will say, I now know that God is no respecter of persons, that, you know, uh, the the spirit of God is on the Gentiles just like it's on the Jews. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's there's these dramatic turning points, but we're still at this point in the middle of that battle. It's still unfolding. Mm. And so uh, there still is push and pull about this legalism. And Paul is trying to say, listen, uh, you know, don't get sucked into either side of this argument. Don't don't buy into the everything's equally good argument of the Roman culture that just says, oh, yeah, we'll embrace that, too. And we do that in our culture. Yeah, let's just add that. Let's just add that. Um, but don't get caught in this legalism either because that's unhealthy. Right. I mean, and even the fact that we're 10 years after Jesus and they still have slaves, like the son of God coming to earth didn't make them go, hey, maybe this isn't. They were having a home church in a house that had slaves. Yes. Like that seems ridiculous to us now. Yeah, except here we are 10 years post and Paul is beginning to chip away it was what was a deeply entrenched cult. That's why this is so shocking. Mm-hmm. Not because they still had slaves, because there would be no context in which they understood slavery to be um, to be anything except absolutely how the world worked. Right. You know, the Jews themselves had been slaves. They understood that slavery was the organic engine that drove the world. That that was how it worked. That was how the economy was structured and built. So culturally, that's what's kind of shocking about this little story is that Paul is saying, uh, yeah, you know, no, no. Don't. So, so this is an appeal by Paul to speak out against slavery. Not like I met this one guy and he turns out to be a cool guy. Yeah. I mean, this is a uh, that's not how this works anymore. Mm-hmm. In, so now listen to how Paul, and he says this over and over, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, mm-hmm. male or female. Because the other thing that Paul begins to chip away at is this 
highly patriarchal society in which men were the only people who had rights. So children, wives, slaves were all considered property of the man. And in you know in extreme cases, you could have a man who kicked out his kids or killed his kids or killed his wife or killed his slaves. There was no accountability for that. He was, he was kind of – so Paul – really begins to strike at all of that old structure, all of those, which are – so, for example, now, this will be controversial, but I'll say it anyway because it's early in the morning and, you know. <laughs> so Paul says, I do not let women speak in church, you know. So we've we've taken that thing that he says. Well, if you read the New Testament, you find that Paul, very often, the church is established around women, prominent women of the community. And so over and over – that's who came to listen to Paul and were empowered by Paul. Well, when they went home, that was highly countercultural. Mm. And I think Paul realized very early that we're empowering and elevating women, which Jesus did as well. If we don't temper that, you know, this whole thing is going to fall apart because it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of those limitations are to say, we are pushing for the equality in Christ. There's no slavery, free Jew or Greek, male or female. But we're going to have to ease that into the culture because we, we're going to get a revolt up front instead of having – again, we're not asking for conformity. We're asking for transformation. Yeah. You know, he's not asking uh, Philemon to, you know, welcome him back because he's asking. He's asking him to think of him as a different currency. He's not imprinted by Caesar's corn. He's imprinted by the image of Christ. Right. So there's depth in this transformation of, yeah, I don't see people that way anymore. Which, I mean, would anger a lot of people. That's going to yes. have huge implications oh. for economic reasons and all those Massive. things. Massive, right? yeah. So I love when we get writers like Dan Brown who writes, you know, uh, stories about how Christianity, you know, manipulated the story and, you know, the, There's just that whole idea of, you know, how Christianity had power and so it formed the New Testament the way it wanted to. And, Mm -hmm. you know, well, in fact, Christianity was illegal. Yeah. So there was no power. Uh, They held things sacred that they believed to be sacred and held them until a time that Constantine in the fourth century converts to Christianity. And now they can have an official council to declare what the Bible is because they, they can, mm-hmm. but up until this time they can't. But right. what was held sacred in these views were they were trafficked and people understood them. These letters we have because they were held sacred. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a revolutionary calling. Listen, when you read in the new Testament that thousands were coming because they had never seen this kind of egalitarian fellowship where mm-hmm. people gather around the table, rich and poor, you know, people highly connected, people completely disenfranchised. They had never seen a cultural setting in which people sat at a table like that. And so, yeah, people were buying in in mass because they had never been given that kind of uh, standing or worth mm-hmm. or value. This is the only place in the first century that you could go and these crazy ideas were being talked about and practiced. This kind of love, this kind of honor, this kind of respect. Right. It doesn't mean it take, doesn't take time, and it doesn't mean that it's not imperfect because it is. Right. But when you read about why people were coming in waves to be a part of this movement, uh, it wasn't necessarily because they had all heard the teachings of Jesus and bought into the whole thing. 
It's because they were being treated differently than they had ever been treated in the name of Christ. Right. And I think that's still a very valuable thing for us to think about. You know, why is the church considered to be so irrelevant? Well, because it it doesn't offer a significantly different cultural experience than any other thing in the world. Right. It's supposed to, you know, which is why this letter becomes so important. We're being invited to live in a space that is unique in the world, that right. is truly loving and truly full of grace and truly building esteem and value and worth and seeing people not as imprinted by our culture or our politics or our movements, but imprinted by the very image of Christ, that every person we meet is a brother or sister, and and we see it that way. We right. just think of people. We value people. We love people like that. Right. I love the part where he says, look, I could order you to do this. Yeah. I could. I could just tell you what to do, but I want you to understand it. Yeah. And I think that's something that is really missing from our culture. Yeah. It's a lot of people telling you what to do, but not a lot of people explaining why. Yeah. Well, and then what we get is we get compliance Mm -hmm. without transformation. Yeah. And then that doesn't go very far. So what we do, like in our politics now, whoever has power, they dominate and mistreat the other side and, and degrade the other side, denigrate that mentality instead of, I've been given the responsibility to lead and leadership is leading people of diverse perspectives together for a greater good. I, my heart is different towards people who don't think like I think or feel like I feel or have the same, you know, racial background or upbringing. I have compassion, love, care for all of those people. That only happens as a transformation of heart. You know, that, that's a different kind of human experience. And it takes more time but lasts longer, I think. It takes more time and lasts longer. So I think, again, to, to get back into this reality and the reason we're taking a couple of weeks here and just sitting down in this story is because we're invited to be a part of something that is truly transformational, where we don't just act nice to each other. We actually have deep value for other human beings. And if we can't get any other message out there week after week on this little segment, you know, this whole segment's called Healing Conversations. And one of the seven elements of a healing conversation that we've talked about that's in the book is the reality that we have to have respect for each other. You know, every person I meet has something of value to teach me. If I don't believe that, uh, I'm not going to have very many healing conversations, whether it's my own kids that I think don't know much because they're younger than me or it's people from different backgrounds. I've got to have real honor and respect. And I think that's so lacking in our culture and in our world. And it's lacking in the church. I think most people, if you said, what about the church? They'd say, I'm not sure that's the most loving place around. (laughs) And it ought to be. Hey, listen, I hope you'll go out into your day today. And I hope you'll have an invitation to a new reality to live in a higher way, a better way. That you'll leave the dominion of darkness and its weight and you come into the kingdom of light. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Ed Milet 
Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 